So yeah, as Fran said, if you felt like the, the, the worship time was short, it's because it was, uh, because the Spirit led me to do things a little bit differently today. I actually want to bring two different teachings today, and what we're going to do is in between those two different teachings is we're going to go back into some prayer and some worship to kind of break it up. Uh, but, but here's what happened, and, and what was really strong upon my heart is I've been gone the last two Sundays since October 7th. Uh, when Israel suffered a, a horrendous and atrocious terrorist attack uh, that saw civilians murdered and executed and, and, and taken hostage. And I just felt it was incredibly important for me pastorally to address this and what's happening in Gaza and, and what's happening in this Israel-Hamas war. And so we're going to take some time this morning, and, and we want to address it. Why? Because we want to have a biblical response to it. We want to make sure that we are balanced and that we are loving and that we are in truth when it comes to the response to what's going on in, in the Middle East right now. So, so that's where we're going to go. I've been praying all week for wisdom, for God to give me the right words, to speak with truth and to rightly divide truth so that we as a church can love people appropriately, and that we can respond appropriately when these kinds of things happen around the world. So that's where we're going to go today. So we're going to start with a basic premise, and that is this. We stand with Israel. That's not a shocking premise. Pretty much every church in America has made that declaration over the last couple of weeks. We stand with Israel. But what was strong upon my heart is asking the question, why? Why do we stand with Israel? Because if we don't have the right reason, we can make our stand in the wrong way. Let me say that one more time so that we understand where we're going. If we don't stand with the right reason, then we can stand in the wrong way. And so I want to talk about why. Why do we stand with Israel in the midst of what is happening right now? For some people, their why might be geopolitical reasons. What do I mean by that? Israel, outside of NATO, has been the strongest ally of the United States for the last 60 years. Uh, they are, of all non-NATO countries, they are the country that we have given the most money to, the most aid, uh, the most weaponry. And there's a reason for that, right? And that is because there is very little stability in the Middle East, and so the United States has identified the priority of the stability of Israel and how important that is to the stability of all the other countries in the Middle East. And so the United States stands with Israel. President Biden made that very clear. But that's not why we stand with Israel, right? We are not a church of the United States. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And as citizens of the United States, we can support the fact that Israel is our ally, but as a church, that's not why we stand with Israel. So then some people have theological reasons why we stand with Israel. And those theological reasons are wrapped up in what is known as dispensational theology. What is dispensational theology? Well, it's this idea that God operates in different eras. Right? So God has his own worldwide eras tour. Okay? So, man, some of you just aren't into pop culture, I guess. Jeez. All right. Um, 
So dispensational theology teaches that God throughout human history has operated in eras. We as a church, we do not believe in or teach dispensational theology. All right, if you as an individual choose to believe in it, I'm not going to argue with you because it's not a salvation issue. But we as a church do not teach this theology. So dispensational theology teaches that at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, God pushed pause on his dealings with the nation of Israel as his chosen people. But then there is going to be a rapture of the church where God takes all the Christians out of the world before the great tribulation. And when he does that, he's going to unpause his dealings with Israel. And Israel is again going to become the chosen people of God. And God is going to deal with them before the end of time. All right, we don't believe in this theology. But if somebody is a dispensationalist, then they're going to stand with Israel because they believe that Israel is still God's chosen people and that Israel is still going to be central to the workings of God in the great tribulation. And so in that aspect, they make that stand. All right, we as Kauai Bible Church, we do not believe in dispensational theology. We believe in replacement theology. What is replacement theology? We believe that the church has replaced biblical Israel. We believe that as the church of Jesus Christ, we are now the chosen people of God. And it's no longer that you are of the bloodline of Abraham that you are the chosen people of God, but it is because you have put your faith in Christ Jesus as Lord that you become the chosen people of God. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3 as Paul laid this out. He said, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then listen to this. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. What does that mean? That means that as followers of Jesus, we have become the chosen people of God. And all of the covenants and the promises in the Old Testament that applied to Israel now apply to us. So because we believe in replacement theology, we don't believe that the nation of Israel today is the biblical Israel. We believe that we as the church are the biblical Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that we dishonor the history of Israel, right? Paul said in Romans 11 that we as Gentiles are grafted into the vine and Jesus is the true vine, but the Israelites were the original natural branches. So we don't dishonor the history of Israel, but we recognize that the nation of Israel today is not the biblical Israel. It's just another nation in the world. And so you say, well, why do we believe in replacement theology and not dispensational theology? And my answer is because replacement theology is orthodox. If you want to know how the early church believed in the Bible, then what you do is you go back to the first generation of church leaders after the apostles. We call them the early church fathers. And we say, what did they teach? The early church fathers taught replacement theology. Dispensational theology was developed in the late 1800s, and it became popular in the United States around the 1920s. And so it's been around for about the last hundred years. 
but replacement theology is orthodox. It's what the original church taught. So you say, why are you teaching this? Why is it so important for us to understand this? Because this is where we can stand with Israel in the wrong way. If we believe in dispensational theology, then we believe that Israel is still the chosen people of God. And so we believe that by standing with Israel, we're standing for some sort of a large spiritual war where Israel is the good guys and Palestine is the bad guys. And that is way too simplified a version of a very complex issue. As dispensationalists, we would stand and say that we stand with the Jews because the Jews are the good guys and the Muslims are the bad guys. That's not loving biblical balance. Listen, the Jews and the Muslims both need Jesus. They both need Jesus. So that's why it's important to understand that we don't stand with Israel because of dispensational theology. And you say, okay, so we've, we've crossed out political reasons, and we've crossed out theological reasons. So then why do we stand with Israel? And the answer is this. We stand with Israel because as God's church, we are called to stand against evil. That's why we stand with Israel. Terrorism is evil. Murdering innocent people is evil. Kidnapping people is evil. And we stand against that. And so we stand against Hamas and what they stand for. Now listen, this isn't a secret. This isn't like Hamas has some hidden agenda that we're trying to speculate on. No, Hamas has a stated agenda. It's written. You can look it up yourself. Their stated agenda is the complete elimination of Jews and the Jewish state. Their only agenda is to murder all Jews and kill all Jews until none are left. So basically, they are carrying on the same mission of Nazi Germany. And we stand against that. That's why we stand with Israel. Because nobody deserves to have their borders invaded and their people murdered. And nobody deserves to live in fear like that. And nobody should have to. Psalms 94, 16, God asks us this question. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do injustice? Come on, God is asking, who will stand against evil? We will. We are his church. And so we stand with Israel because we stand against evil. This means that we stand with Israel for the same reason we are standing with Ukraine. Because they were invaded with no pretense. And though Russia is not recognized as a terrorist state, what Russia has done to Ukraine is terrorism. And so we stand with Israel for the same reason we are standing with Ukraine, because we stand against evil. All right, not because we stand against the Muslims and we think the Jews are better than Muslims, not because we think the Israelites are better than the Palestinians, no, simply because we stand against the evil that has been perpetrated. This isn't good guys versus bad guys. This is one nation that needs Jesus versus another nation that needs Jesus. That's what this is. The history of the Middle East is incredibly complicated. The nation of Israel as we know it today was established by the United Nations in 1948. After the atrocities and the genocide committed against the Jewish people by Nazi Germany, the United Nations decided that the, the Jewish people needed a home state. They needed a place where they could choose to go live if they wanted to, if they wanted to live in a Jewish state where they could live by their convictions. 
And so in 1948, the United Nations told Palestine, we're going to divide your land in half. Palestinians, you're all going to move to one half of it, and we're going to give the other half to the Jewish people. As you can imagine, the Palestinian people didn't like that. And from 1948 until today, there has been ongoing conflicts and war and divisiveness in that place. So this is a very complicated 75-year issue. We're not going to simplify it by making a declaration that Israel is the good guys and Palestine is the bad guys. Do you guys understand that with me? All right, the other question that is running rampant on social media is what does this have to do with the end times? You're, if you're on social media, you're seeing it all over the place. This is it, right? It's like George Jefferson, this is it. I'm coming, Wheezy. This is the end of the world. This is the one. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. The rapture's gonna happen, right? You're seeing it all over social media. Take a deep breath, and let's ask ourselves the question, is this war a fulfillment of prophecy or a sign that the end times are upon us? Is this a sign that the world is coming to an end and that we're about to be raptured? Well, number one, we don't believe in the rapture. So, no, I don't think so. But as we need to not be prisoners of the moments, in the moment, we're like, this is a big deal. Israel's under attack. This is God's people. But if we take a step back and realize this conflict has been going on for 75 years. And so why would this war be any different than all the other ones they've been fighting for the last 75 years? So for that reason, we need to take a step back, take a deep breath, and realize this has been going on for a long time. Remember, what is KBC's stance on the end times? We taught this back in March. If you missed it or if you want to review it, go back to our podcast and go back and listen to the things that we taught in March. Our stance on the end times is that we are not looking to connect one current day event to an obscure prophecy to make a declaration about the return of Christ. We're not trying to do that. All right, most of the stuff you're reading on, on social media, most of the books out there with sensational headlines, that's what they're doing. They're taking current day events, they're trying to relate them to an obscure prophecy, and they're trying to say the rapture is at hand. That's not our stance on the end times. Our stance on the end times is that we are looking for the increasing intensity of birth pangs when it comes to things like wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, deception, etc. Jesus said, look for the birth pangs. So, is this war a part of those increasing birth pangs? I think it's safe to say that yes. We are seeing wars and chaos and natural disasters and deception at, at an increased scale. And so, yes, we feel like we are moving towards the end times, not because of this one event, but because of the increasing intensity that we see. And again, if we go back to March, what did we teach in March? That in these times, we are called to be people of truth, people of peace, people of confidence, and people of love. And so posting stuff on social media and running around with our hair on fire because the world's in chaos, that is not truth or peace or confidence or love. So let's make this stand. Right? We're going to stand for truth. 
We're going to be people of confidence that God is still in control. We're going to bring peace into chaotic situations. And we're going to love people. We're going to love the Jews and the Muslims. We're going to love the Israelites and the Palestinians. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray. I want us to pray for Israel, but I also want us to pray for Palestine. I want to pray for the Jews, and I also want to pray for the Muslims. And let's be shocking, let's also pray for Hamas. And let's pray that those radical Islamic terrorists encounter Jesus and have a radical change of hearts. God can do it. Amen? Second Timothy. I'm sorry. You got that one, Antonio? There we go. First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all people. Come on, we need to embrace all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then listen to what God spoke to Jeremiah. When God was calling Jeremiah to ministry, he said, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. That means that our prayers can change the destiny of nations. Our prayers can change the destinies of people. And so we're going to pray for everybody involved. We are going to be balanced. We're going to be loving. We're going to be biblical. We're going to be people of peace. And we're going to pray for everybody involved. But we're going to stand against evil. And we're not going to be shy about standing against evil. Amen? Well, first off, has the teaching and preaching been amazing in my absence? Come on. It is so comforting to be able to go and know that the church is still going to be well-fed on Sundays. And uh, so I want to thank, thank Sarah, who wrapped up our mission series. You got to clap really loud. She's, she's in the harbor classroom. But <laughs> she wrapped up our mission series, and what a powerful presentation of short-term missions, the sacrifice it takes, and the transformation it has on our lives. And I loved even how transparent she was that there are some negative things about short-term missions that we have to be aware of so that we don't come in with some sort of a hero complex that we're coming to save the day. No, we're just going to be sacrificial givers of our lives on the mission field. And we're the ones that are going to be most transformed by going. So she did a phenomenal job, and we are now praying about opportunities to take teams on short-term missions next year. And so I want to ask you to be praying about that because come January, we're going to make some announcements with some dates and some opportunities to do short-term missions. And, and I want to see some teams fill up and see us go on the field. Amen? And then last Sunday, Mark and Val kicked off our new teaching series. And I love how Mark introduced it, that it's a four-part series that's going to take six Sundays to get through. So... Because we're doing two parts, and then we're taking two weeks off, and then we're doing the other two parts. And, uh, and as Fran opened the service with, they did a phenomenal job of challenging us to cross the chicken line. And I love how relatable and human they are as they address their own fears and challenge us to overcome our fear. So thank you, Mark and Val. Whew. 
And so I'm going to continue in this vein of ambassadors for Christ. And again, this is going to be a shorter message because I've already used up most of my time. Uh, but I still want to give you something uh, compact and powerful as, as, as we move in this series. And I just want to be honest with you. I had a hard time this week writing a message for two reasons. One, because this Israel thing was so strong on my heart, I couldn't shake it. But the second reason is because I was dealing with some of my own discouragement of, I've preached evangelistic messages before, and nothing's really changed. So why is this one going to be any different? And that was the discouragement I brought to the table as I tried to write this sermon. And normally I complete my sermons, or I complete the, the core of my sermons on Wednesdays. And then on Thursdays and Fridays, I, I fine-tune it. And so by the end of the day on Friday, it's good to go. Well, Wednesday came and went. I couldn't write anything. Thursday came and went. I couldn't write anything. Finally, Friday morning, I went and I got alone and, 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 and spent some time in solitude with the Lord. And he gave me something. And uh, uh, I want to I give this to you. It's almost a, an encouragement to prayer more than it is a complete sermon. But, but here's the thing, and you can find this in your notes. Your notes are in your bulletin. They're on the church app. They're attached to this video. They're attached to this audio. This is what I want to do. We have an evangelism conference coming up in three weeks. We're asking you to set aside a weekend to be equipped in an Acts chapter 4 kind of a manner. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, when you read Acts chapter 4, in the midst of a day of persecution, the church gathered and prayed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The building shook, and they went out, and they shared the gospel with great boldness. That's what we want for Kauai Bible Church. And so we're asking you to set aside a weekend so that we can have an Acts chapter 4 experience. A Friday night about four hours on a Saturday, and then our normal Sunday morning service, that as a church we can be equipped to share the gospel. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because I understand human nature, because I have it too. And the thought is, I'm terrified of evangelizing. I don't want to evangelize. So why would I waste my whole weekend learning how to do something I don't even want to do? Oh, I got really quiet. Either that means I completely missed the mark or I hit too close to the mark. Yes. So I want to encourage you to come to this weekend, even if that's what you're thinking. I'm scared to death of this. I don't want to do this. I want you to come. Because remember, we got the word pioneer on the wall over there. As a church, we are supposed to return to our pioneer roots. And if we don't get radical about sharing the gospel with our unsaved friends and neighbors we are not going to get back to our pioneer roots. That's what this is about. And so since I know we're apprehensive about it and we're scared of it and, and we're not well-versed in it, this is what I want to do. I want to challenge us to commit to praying for God's heart for the next three weeks leading up to this conference. I want to encourage you to pray. I would even encourage you to fast if there's a certain way God calls you to fast over these next three weeks. Let's pray. And this is specifically what I want to pray for, that God would break our hearts for the condition and the destiny of unsaved people. Because if our hearts aren't broken for their reality, we are not going to be motivated to share the gospel with them. 
I believe, because this is true of me as well, that we just tend to see people like, hey, they're just living their lives and, you know, they're not inherently evil and they're not trying to do anything wrong and I'd like to invite them to church, but I don't want to bother them and I don't want to come across as one of those people that keep inviting them to church. And, and if we have that mindset, we're never going to share the gospel. What we need is the eyes of God to see beyond the fact that they just look like normal people that are living their lives and working jobs. And we see the true condition of their souls and the true destiny of their lives. And we're broken by that. And if we would allow ourselves to be broken by that, we would be motivated to share the gospel with them. We couldn't help but invite them to church. We were on vacation in New York City, and we became experts at using the subway to get around New York City. And one day, we got off the subway, and we were taking the escalator that takes you back up to street level, and there were two Mormon missionaries that just happened to be going up the stairs the same time as us. And all these two Mormon missionaries were doing with these throngs of people making their way up the stairs as they were just walking around, hey, you want to go to church on Sunday? Hey, you want to go to church on Sunday? They came up to me, hey, you want to go to church on Sunday? I said, I've already got a church to go to on Sunday. They said, okay, hey, you want to go to church on Sunday? They weren't embarrassed. They weren't ashamed. They were just asking every single person they saw, do you want to go to church on Sunday? And as it was happening, I just thought, dear God, they have a false gospel, and they are unashamed of it. We have the true gospel, and we're afraid to invite anybody to church. Come on, God, break our hearts for the true condition of man that we would be as bold as those Mormon missionaries. So God, in his amazing sovereignty, gave me great encouragement on Friday morning. As I had gone two days of writer's block and I couldn't write a teaching, I went down. I was actually at Poipu Beach just practicing solitude by myself, praying and meditating. And as I'm sitting there trying to get a word of the Lord about evangelism, wouldn't you know it, but two guys walked up to me and they just said, hey, my name's Nate and this is Hayden and we were just wondering if there's anything we could pray for. And I just... These guys are straight evangelizing. The very thing I'm trying to get a word for, and God sent me two guys. And I said, this is amazing. I said, yes, sit down, let's pray. And I told them, I said, I'm a pastor, and I'm trying to write a sermon on evangelism, and here you guys are outliving it, trying to have gospel conversations with complete strangers. And so we talked, and we prayed. I prayed for them and their ministry. They prayed for me and for Kauai Bible Church. And it was just God's sovereignty to encourage me that, yes, we can do it. And listen, you don't have to if it's not your personality. You don't have to go share the gospel just with complete strangers. But let's share the gospel with somebody. Let's ask somebody to pray. Let's share our testimony. Let's share the gospel. Let's have a gospel conversation that we would be unashamed to invite somebody to church. Amen? We know it's God's heart for all people to be saved. Jesus died for all people. And Jesus said he's not going to come back until all people have heard the gospel. So we need to have God's heart that he wants all people to hear the gospel. Right? We put this sign up on the wall, every person matters. 
We put it right over the door so every time you're leaving, I want it to be the last thing you see in this sanctuary to remind you every person matters to God. He wants every person to hear the gospel. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 is the core verse of this teaching series, but I want to read the whole passage together so that we get the core verse in context. So we're going to pick it up from verse 14, and this is what Paul writes. He said, Christ compels, controls us. Other translations say the love of Christ compels us. The Greek word means it grips us and it won't let us go. We are so gripped by the love of Christ, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh, even though we have known Christ by the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who is the us that Paul is talking about right here? The church. All of us. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us, and then he says, now go and find more that I can reconcile. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if we are so gripped by the love of Christ that we see somebody that doesn't have the love of Christ and we can see the true condition of their lives, then we couldn't keep silent, but we would be those who would beg, who would implore, who would plead, be reconciled to God. Listen to the gospel. So what is the condition of unsaved man? When I do a team captain training session with our, with our next crew of leaders, one of the key things we do is we teach doctrine. We want to make sure that anybody who's in leadership in the church has a solid foundation of doctrine. And uh, for that doctrine, we use Bill Scheidler's curriculum. Bill Scheidler is a teacher in the five-fold ministry. He is a profound teacher. You might get a chance to meet him next April. I, I don't know for sure, but he may be here in April to teach us. But we use his curriculum, and one of the, the chapters was on man. What is our doctrine of man? What do we believe about man? And, and as, as we went through that teaching together with the team captains, I was just stirred by how awful condition man is when he is not saved. Even if he's got a good job and a family and he's, you know, looks like a regular person living his life. What is the condition of an unsaved person? Ephesians chapter 2 and you were dead in your offenses and sins. 
You were dead in your offenses and sins. So here's the thing. Unsaved man needs life and hope. And that first blank in your notes is death. What is the condition of unsaved man? The condition is death. He is dead in his trespasses and his sins. What does that mean to be dead? Well, first off, it means that that person is cut off from the source of life. That Jesus is the source of all life, and that person is cut off because of their sin. They don't have that source of life. It means that they're dead on the inside. One uh, commentary that I read called them living corpses. They look alive on the outside, but they're a corpse on the inside because they don't have the gracious presence of God's Spirit in their soul. And so they are unable to think or will or do anything that God would consider holy. Think about that. They are unable to think or to will or to do anything that God considers holy. They have no access to the principles and powers of the spiritual life. They are dead on the inside. Let's continue in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So your second word is slavery. An unsaved person is a slave to the course of this world. They are a slave to their own sin nature. They are a slave to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan himself. And I know people like to say, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. No, you're not. You're a slave to the carnal nature that is inside of you. And you have no power within yourself to break out of that slavery. That is the condition of unsaved man. Verse 3, let's continue in Ephesians 2. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. The third word I want you to write in there is enmity. Somebody who is unsaved is a child of wrath, which means they are an enemy of God. Not only do they not have a relationship with God, but they are in complete opposition to God. They are outside the covering of His goodness, His mercy, His grace, His blessings, and they are opposed to His will. Right? John said anyone who wants to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is the condition. People need life and hope. They're dead on the inside. They're slaves to their nature, and they have no power to break out of that slavery. They're in opposition to God, and they are completely outside of his umbrella of blessing and grace and mercy. That is their condition. Even if they've got a successful career and a great family and a healthy marriage, that is their condition. So then let's switch gears to Romans chapter 3. And Paul here is quoting from the Psalms as he writes this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
Again, going back to our previous teaching on replacement theology. Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, and now here's where he quotes the Psalms, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. So I'm going to skip your next blank, and I'm going to go to the two no's. It's no inclination and no understanding. No inclination. What does that mean? That means that they have no natural leaning towards God. They're not drawn to seek Him out. They're not drawn to to, to turn their life over to Him. They're not drawn to, to be closer to Him. There is no inclination within them to lean towards God. Left to their own nature, they will continually drift further and further from God. And then no understanding. There is no understanding of spiritual things. Right? The, the, the metaphor is like they have a veil over their mind, and they cannot see spiritual truth. They cannot understand spiritual truth. It says that they are corrupted. Their minds are corrupted and cannot understand the things of God or the things of holiness. And so if they have no natural leaning towards God, if left to their own devices, they're just going to drift away from God, then what do they need? They need an intervention of the gospel. And what is that intervention of the gospel? Well, it could be a major life crisis. It could be a traumatic event. Something awful happens in their life that suddenly shakes them out of their stupor and they realize they need something more than just the natural world to get through what this life has. And so an intervention could be a traumatic, a crisis, an awful life event. Or an intervention could be somebody that God sends into their life to intersect their life with the gospel. And guess who that is? That's us. We are the intervention. And I'm not talking about the kind of intervention where you sit somebody down with four family members and convince them to go to rehab. I'm talking about the kind of intervention where you have intersected their life with the love of God and you are the one that is going to bring the gospel to them in such a way that the veil will be lifted from their eyes and they will suddenly have an opportunity to be drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ. They need an intervention. And yeah, we could just sit around and pray for everybody to have an awful life crisis so that they get broken and and brought to the altar, but... Wouldn't it be better if we just went out and loved people and that we were the thing that brought their inclination towards God? So come on, I want to see people with the eyes of Christ, that they are dead on the inside, that they are trapped in slavery, that they are living as enemies of God. They have no inclination towards God. They have no understanding of spiritual things. Their minds are corrupted. That's their condition. And then... What is their destiny? In your notes, it's eternal destruction and eternal separation. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10. 
And starting about halfway through uh, verse 7, it says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified among his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Come on, somebody needs to be intersected with a testimony that they can believe in, that they can give their life to Jesus so that on the day of judgment, they're not facing eternal destruction, right? Hell is a place of never-ending punishment and torture, right? There is pain and there is burning and there is anguish and there is the gnashing of teeth. And after you've been through it for a thousand years, you haven't even gotten started yet. That's eternal destruction. And then eternal separation. Maybe the worst part of hell isn't the pain. It's the complete lack of God. It is the complete separation. That's why the Bible uses mixed metaphors. It says that hell is a place of fire and hell is a place of darkness. Well, it can't be both at the same time because fire means it's not dark. But you get the point. Fire means it's a place of pain and darkness means it's a place of no God, no truth, completely separated. We think earth is bad. Earth still has the Holy Spirit everywhere. Hell has no Holy Spirit, no God, no blood of Jesus to cover our sins. It's eternal separation. Let me have the worship team come back up today. So this is what I want to do. We're going to sing a song, and, and it may be a song you've never heard before. So you may not sing along with it, but I just want you to catch the heart of it. Because the heart of the song is that the only thing that will change our destiny. The only thing that will change our condition is the blood of Jesus. It's not our performance. It's not how good we look on the outside. It's not anything we deserve. It's not what we can earn. It's not that God is impressed with us. None of that matters. All that matters is the blood of Jesus. And can we commit ourselves to praying that God would break our hearts, that we would see people in their true condition and we would be so broken by seeing in their, in their true condition that all we could do is love them and share our testimony with them and share the gospel with them. Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, he was a great revivalist of the 1800s. I put it in your notes because I wanted you to be able to hang on to this quote. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Come on, that is the heart we need to be ambassadors for Christ. Yes, we know people are going to go to hell. Jesus said the way to life is hard to find. But let's make sure that anybody who's on their way to hell has to get through us first.
and we're clinging to their ankles and we're begging them not to go. And we know that they're covered in prayer and we know they've heard the truth of the gospel because we love them so much we can't stay silent. And because we're so broken by their brokenness, we just want them to experience the wholeness that we have found in Christ Jesus. If they're going to go to hell, let them have to get through us first. That should be our hearts. And so I want to encourage you to be stirred by this song. And I just want to pray right now, and I'm going to ask you to commit to this three-week prayer journey with me. And I'm going to ask you to commit to being at that evangelism conference so that we can catch this Acts 4 passion. And we can see this pioneer spirit bring a revival in Kauai Bible Church. Amen? So, Lord, we begin right now. God, our prayer is simple. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Jesus, Jesus, the longing that you have for mankind, the longing, Jesus, that caused you to weep over those that had rejected you. Lord, would you give us the same longing? Jesus, Jesus, that we would not settle for people going to hell that we would not settle for just being polite, that we would not settle for being quiet just because we didn't want to bother somebody. Oh, but Lord, we would be moved by the fact that hell is real and hell is awful, and we don't want anybody to even have to spend a moment there. And so, Lord, your gospel would be upon our lips. Lord, we would be moved to pray for the lost and cover them in prayer. Oh, Lord, we would be anointed and powerful because of our passion, Lord. Oh, that we would share the gospel with people. We would see signs and wonders. We would see people coming to salvation, Lord. Jesus, let us not settle for the status quo. Let us not be happy. Oh, that we're going to heaven. Paul was so passionate, he declared, I would commit myself to hell if it meant all my countrymen could go to heaven. Well, thank you, Lord, that we don't have to make that sacrifice, but let us have the same passion that we would do whatever it takes for our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, Kauai, the nations and the peoples to the ends of the earth wouldn't have to go to hell without experiencing the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. Move our hearts right now as we sing. Move our hearts as we pray these next three weeks. And let this be a pivotal moment in the next season of Kauai Bible Church. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let this song stir you. Let the Spirit of God stir you today.